I too thought that there was going to be kind of an immediate flood of transactions to hit. There was going to be huge amounts of distress. Banks were going to want to take these onto the balance sheets. Short sales would be happening left and right. Uh, it was going to be a bit of a free-for-all. And now that I had someone smarter than me explain it to me, I realized why I was wrong. If we think back to 2009, it was a very similar kind of feeling. Post-Lehman, the expectation was 2008, 2009, there was going to be a flood of asset sales. Travel was down, loans were impaired, people were not going to want to defend the you know crazy prices they paid in 2006 and 2005. It was really going to be you know a, a free-for-all. That free-for-all never really happened, and the transaction market didn't really pick up until the second half of 2010 and into 2011. So if we kind of use that timeline, it's really going to be Q3, Q4 of this year when a lot more transactions start happening. And it's not going to be at these massive, you know, 25, 30, 40% discounts everybody was hoping for. It's going to be, you know, 5 and 10%. And it's going to be dependent on who's willing to take some recovery risk. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have a friend of mine from Twitter, another anonymous account. I feel like some of my best friends these days are now anonymous, but this is some hotel guy who I've gotten to know and as a brilliant mind for the hotel industry. As most people know, hotels have been a hot topic across the world as we've lived through the COVID era. Today's episode is awesome. This is everything you want to know about hotels. And I'm probably going to title it Hotel Industry 101 because if you listen to this episode, you will have a much better idea of the hotel industry, where it's going, what it's experienced the last year and a half, and why the future is bright for hotels. So thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Some hotel guy, thank you so much for joining me today uh, on the podcast. I am pumped to talk about hotels. Thanks so much for having me. I think this is uh, a really interesting and exciting opportunity, and I hope uh, folks find it useful. Yep. I'm really excited I found you on Twitter. Um, I've learned a lot from following you. Obviously, hotels have been something that a lot of people want to talk about in light of the last year and a half. So, so here we go. Let's just maybe start out with, if you can give maybe a little bit of background just kind of on uh, what you're doing in hotels and your kind of position within the industry, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I work for a company that is a I'll say medium-sized owner-operator of hotels. We own hotels around the country and we operate the hotels that we own. Uh, We also operate hotels on behalf of other owners. So on the one hand, we're a traditional real estate private equity company and that we invest in real estate, just in our case, specifically hotels. Uh, But where we're a little bit different is hotels are operating businesses, day-to-day operations, renting rooms nightly. And we've incorporated the operations into our platform. Got it. So you guys buy hotels, you own your Opco, and then your Opco also manages on behalf of other owners. Exactly. 
do y'all operate under one brand or do you guys operate under multiple brands, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, that's a great question. We operate under multiple brands. And I think that brings up, you know, a little bit of the, the odd industry architecture that we have within the hotel space. So, you know, there are, let's call it four big brand families within the United States. There's the Marriott brand family, the Hilton brand family, the Hyatt brand family, and the IHG brand family. And there's a whole bunch more. You've got your choices, your best Westerns, your Wyndham's, all of which are quite large and well-respected. But I tend to think of those four first. And they are primarily licensors or franchisors of brands to groups like us who will own and operate the hotels under those brands. And do y'all do, y'all do just one type of hotels, like extended stay or um, higher level hotels? Or do you... Do you do all different types of uh, hotels? So we tend to we tend to flex from sort of the middle up. In the industry architecture, we talk about what are called chain scales. And there's a, a third-party data company called STR that does a whole bunch of data collection and analysis. And they tier hotels and hotel brands in these uh, you know, uh, tiers called chain scales. And that goes from economy, mid-scale, upper mid-scale, upscale, upper upscale, and luxury. And so whether you're a branded hotel or an independent hotel, you typically fall within some uh, segment of that. We tend to play in the upper mid-scale and upscale space most, and we do have some upper upscale hotels. Can you describe to me what upper mid-scale and upscale is like? So maybe a brand associated with a brand or, or I'm not familiar. Absolutely. So, so the easiest way to d- describe it is to associate with a brand. So upper mid-scale, think Hampton Inn. Okay. Upscale, think Courtyard by Marriott or Residence Inn or Homewood Suites. Upper upscale, think something like a Hyatt Regency or a Westin or uh, a Marriott. Got it. And like a Four Seasons or a Omni or something like that would be considered luxury? Yeah, Four Seasons is definitely considered luxury. Omni, I think, is is considered upper upscale. The way there's sort of two different tiers. The way STR defines the chain scales is really on the basis of average daily rate and how much you charge over the course of a year will determine what tier you fall into. Uh, and when you're a brand, it's on an aggregate basis across that entire brand across the entire country. The other sort of way to think about hotels is more on service levels. And there you might have a limited service hotel that basically just offers guest rooms. You might have a select service hotel that offers guest rooms, a little bit of meeting space, and and probably a bar or a grab-and-go that has a little bit of food associated with it. You might have a full-service hotel, and that full-service hotel is going to have a restaurant, usually a three-meal. Uh, and some substantial meeting space. And then you might have a luxury hotel that's going to have a whole lot of everything. And do you have to get approved as an owner-operator to be, let's say, with one of the big four brands? Like, it's Is it like uh, being a car dealer where you, not everybody can be a car dealer? You must be selected. And if so, like, how do you get approved to be able to operate under one of these brands? Yeah, you, you absolutely do need to be approved. Um, and the the sad thing is, the only way to get approved is to have a deal. So it tends to be an ongoing conversation. If you are a first-time hotel owner and you're 
on, you know, in the process to buy a courtyard by Marriott. Uh, what you're probably going to do is start talking to the Marriott team early on about what your plans are, what you're hoping to accomplish, and how you're hoping to do it. If you've never operated a hotel before, the Marriott team is going to tell you, okay, based on your financial situation, you know, we can approve you as an owner of a courtyard by Marriott. But given your experience, we cannot approve you as an operator. You'll need to go hire a third-party operator from our list of you know, pre-approved existing courtyard operators uh, in order to, to get over the hump. If you're an existing hotel owner and operator looking to, to break into a new brand family, what typically happens is when you go for that approval, you'll sit down and you'll present a whole lot of information about your existing portfolio, what brands they are, how large the hotels are, how they perform on a you know, relative revenue basis, how their guest satisfaction scores perform. And essentially what you're doing is you're selling your skills to Marriott or Hilton or Hyatt as a steward of their property. Because when 99% of the country stays in a Hilton Garden Inn, they don't know or care that someone else owns it and someone else operates it. It's associated with Hilton. So you're really, your role is to be a steward of their brand as much as it is to make money as an owner and an operator. And do they ever care? Like if you were to go to them and would Marriott ever say, well, looks like you're 90% Hilton. We wouldn't want you to have the Marriott brand because it looks like you're more loyal to Hilton. Like, is there any kind of conflict there? Like again, with car dealers, most car dealers are Ford dealers. They're not Chevy dealers. Do, Do brands even care? Not generally. And in fact, if you're an overwhelmingly Hilton owner and Marriott were to get you for a new hotel, they would consider it a coup uh, and vice versa. Given how widely distributed and fragmented the industry is, any time that a brand company can work with a consolidated owner or consolidated operator, someone who has control of a, a large number of assets, it's just easier for them. So they're going to look to you as, you know, if you're if they're Marriott and you're a Hilton owner, they're going to look to get in with you and then grow their business with you, you know, and vice versa. Got it. All right. Just a f- we'll do a little uh, scenario, pretend scenario. So let's just say I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. I've got a great piece. I've never owned a hotel, but I got a great piece of land that would make for a great Marriott. I would go to Marriott and say, uh, hey, I'm going to build this hotel and they'd say, that's great. We'd love to be a part of it. But since you're not an operator, here's a list of operators that you need to get comfortable with. And once you've selected one of them, uh, we'll approve you to make that a Marriott. Yes, that's part of it. Uh, there would also, for something like a Marriott, be a considerable back and forth on architectural plans. Generally speaking, the brands have a huge amount of influence over what you build. Uh, so how many guest rooms is maybe a little bit more flexible on the basis of what your zoning allows and what your available developable square footage is. But that guest room count and the brand is going to drive a lot of other areas. It's going to drive how much meeting space you have, how many or what type of food and beverage outlets you need, how large a fitness center you need, how big a lobby you need, how much circulation space, how many elevators, how many guest elevators, how many service elevators. Uh, do you need a club lounge or a, an M club in the in the case of Marriott? How much parking do you have? How is parking available? So there's going to be a lot of that that actually goes into whether you get approved to ultimately become a Marriott franchisee and build that hotel as a Marriott. 
So assuming I go to them and then I have the plans and, and we've agreed on that, and then I come to you and you say, hey, I'll operate it. Who am I paying? Am I paying you as an operator and then you're paying Marriott some type of franchise fee? Or am I paying Marriott directly and y'all directly? Like what's as a just an owner, where's my money going? Yeah, you're paying both. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it's definitely um, it's definitely a business that is not for the fee leader. So <laughs> if you are an individual owner of hotels, you don't operate your hotels and you're, you're not using a brand of your own creation. You're really paying two different groups. You're paying Marriott and its associated vendors. Marriott, you're paying a franchise fee, as well as you know a brand marketing fee, fees associated with the loyalty program, fees associated with the reservation system and the sales teams, all of which are going to be driving you business. And then you're paying associated vendors for things like the property management system, the sales and catering tracking system, the revenue management system, the housekeeping system, You know what types of computers and hardware and software you need for that. So there's a whole kind of list of required vendors and what you need to do. Then you're paying your operator a management fee, uh, as well as likely some associated fees for accounting services, revenue management services, things like that, that could potentially be done by people on property, but are more cost-effectively done in a centralized way in, let's say, Fort Worth, uh, where you've got a lower cost of, of doing business. Uh, and so you're, char- the, you're being charged by the operator a prorated amount to cover the services they're providing. Got it. And I might botch this question a little, and I've talked to some folks in the hotel industry before, but they've kind of said that, you know, the Hiltons and the Marriott's and the Hyatt's of the world almost have this monopoly in what you described as like the loyalty program and the booking system. It's like if you don't really, they have such a stranglehold on the market and they have so much scale that you basically have to buy these services from them. Or you're, you risk like never getting your place really leased up. Did I ask that right? Or did I say that right? You absolutely described that correctly. Okay. And they are generally speaking, right. Booking sources are really, really tightly controlled. And the two groups that have the most control over them are one, the brands, mm-hmm. and two, the online travel agencies. And if you're a branded hotel your relationship with the online travel agency is really through the brand. So Marriott has a relationship with Expedia. And if you are operating a courtyard by Marriott, your deal with Expedia is through Marriott. Got it. If you're an independent, you're doing a deal directly with Expedia. You have much less pricing power or buying power. So the commission you pay to Expedia is probably going to be double the commission you would pay to Expedia if you were a Marriott. On the other hand, In certain select areas where demand is high and inbound traffic always exists, you can be successful as an independent because the brand costs that get layered on can be fairly considerable. And it's not just fees. So brand service requirements may not make any sense for the hotel you're building or buying, but they're required nonetheless. An example might be, working on a hotel in Midtown Manhattan, you know, let's go pre-COVID. If you're going to be a branded hotel, there's a reasonable chance you'd be required to have some combination of a, a restaurant, room service, a mini bar, if you're building an upper upscale quality hotel. 
Well, you're in Midtown Manhattan. The heck do you need a restaurant for? And room service, well, everybody here has, you know, Seamless or Grubhub. You can order from hundreds of restaurants. What do you need room service for? And minibar, that's just going to be something people steal. So when you, when you start to unpack some of those additional brand service requirements, uh, another good example might be a requirement for a certain amount of Bell staff where, you know, you've, instead of paying folks to open the doors and take, uh, take luggage out of cars, you know, this is a taxi city. Nobody's driving in anyway. Everybody's getting their own luggage because they're coming in and out for a day or two and everybody's got small bags. You can start to lower your overall cost of operation enough to offset the higher cost of customer acquisition that you would have as an independent. And if you're in a place like Manhattan or Oahu or San Francisco, you'll have people looking to find you if you have a nice enough hotel. So you'll be able to drive more direct bookings through your own website than you would as an independent in a, a secondary or tertiary market, where your real source of demand then would be as an online travel agency. And remind me again the difference between an independent and somebody in kind of midtown Manhattan. Well, yeah. So the, the independent in this case just means someone without a brand affiliation. Uh, an independent hotel, one that has has no brand identity. An example here in Manhattan might be the Mark on the Upper East Side. It's a it's a high end luxury hotel. It's not affiliated with any brand at all, and it can succeed because it's in a high demand location with a recognizable name and high quality product, and that allows it to drive considerable bookings. And in a situation like that, is the owner probably also the operator? They've come up with the concept, the Mark, and they kind of they own the whole brand and the experience. In many cases, yes. Although as independent hotels have become more popular and sort of this boutique hotel movement has picked up, you've seen considerable institutional uh, investment in the boutique hotel space and the independent hotels. Uh, And so you'll find, for example, in San Francisco, I, I can think of a half dozen truly independent hotels in San Francisco that are owned by a publicly traded real estate investment trust. And they've hired a third-party operator to run them on their behalf. Got it. Going back to my example where I'm just the owner and I'm hiring um, you as an operator. And again, I'm hiring Marriott. Like who's bearing, does Marriott have any risk? What risk do you have? Like where does the risk lay in a situation like that? So it's all going to depend on how your contracts with Marriott and your operator are negotiated. But the safest assumption is that Marriott has absolutely zero risk. Your operator has a teeny bit of risk, and you have all the risk. And that's really part of the challenge as an owner without the operator wing, is how do you manage that risk? Because the risk is almost universally operational. You know, Unless you're in a place like Chicago, where property taxes keep going up 20% a year, um, your, your biggest risk is going to be your operating platform breaks down uh, and your operator is unable to deliver. And so if you don't control the operator, you need to make sure you're going with someone highly reputable who's really talented and has done this before. And you need to have some sort of an alignment of interest. And there's generally three ways an independent owner like you would achieve that alignment of interest with your operator. One way is you might have your operator co-invest in the deal. Uh, they would put in a percentage of the equity. 
or you know potentially they might offer up key money, which is you know similar in the hotel context to what it is in the retail space. Essentially, an operator paying you up front for the right to the fee stream down the road. So in that case, when the operators got skin in the game, they've got a little bit more incentive to perform. The second way you might align interests is to structure a fee for your operator that's more heavily dependent on performance on the bottom line than it is revenues on the top line. So the typical operator profit fees are the base management fee and the incentive management fee. The base management fee is considered generally a flat percentage of total operating revenue. And the incentive management fee is a flat percentage of net operating income above an owner's return hurdle. So for example, your incentive fee might be 20% of net income above $2 million. So by skewing that pay setup a little bit more to the bottom line than to the top line, you can drive some more alignment. Uh, And the third way you can do it is by signing a terminable uh, management agreement where you have the right to kick your operator out at any time for any reason upon a period of notice. And you as an operator, again, if I just came to you, are are y'all an operator that looks at lots of different deal structures and how you would uh, work with an owner? Or do you guys kind of stick to to one method and it's kind of a take it or leave it offer? We tend to be pretty flexible. Um, You know, our background and our our core business is investing. So if there's a good deal to be done and we can be an equity partner in that deal, we'd be interested in being it. Uh, Conversely, there are plenty of folks out there who don't want our money. And they want that flexibility to not have to wait five years or 10 years to get out of a contract. And so we're open to that sort of thing as well. And then, you know, the base fee incentive fee, that just comes down to a negotiation. I got you. And then as, and and we're going to kind of get into kind of the environment and and where we've, we've been the last year and a half. But do you think that kind of going forward as we sit today, it's going to be more important that somebody is an owner operator and is controlling the whole, just given the amount of kind of risk right now in the industry is, is, are you seeing that how uh, operations and ownership is going to change drastically going forward or will what worked before COVID work going forward? That's a great question. And I'm not sure I have a particularly straightforward answer to it. I'm a bit of two minds. On the one hand, we know that what worked before COVID doesn't necessarily have to work post-COVID. What we've found over the last year and a half is that the the break-even occupancy point for hotels industry-wide is much lower than anyone thought for the sad reason that we've had to cut much more on the property level than anyone thought. So generally, when you cut uh, to the bone and then and then some, uh, you're not going to bring back all of that staffing, certainly at once. And quite frankly, your steady state might be a little bit of a lower staffing model than it had previously been. So I think that's going to be something that's interesting and that likely happens industry-wide. So in that respect, I don't know that it it makes a huge new difference to wanting to control your own operation beyond what it was previously. On the other hand, I do think there is value in having control over your source of alpha, 
assuming you want to be in the weeds of a day-to-day operating business. And I truly mean in the weeds of it. If you don't, you want to make sure you're aligned with someone who is and who is willing to be. It's a very labor-intensive business to oversee, not just to actually operate. All right. We're going to journey back to March of 2020. My first question is from your seat. When did you know that something was about to happen from a business standpoint? Like, was there something that you started seeing or did it hit you? Like, did it surprise you all at once that COVID was coming? So we were at a large industry investment conference in late January of 2020. And this was certainly a topic of conversation. But it wasn't an urgent topic of conversation. It was one of those things that everybody was saying, oh, that's going on overseas. And, you know, gosh, I hope it stays there. When I think it really punched me in the face uh, was the first two weeks of March when I was on two different business trips, one across the country and one to the middle. And flights that I ordinarily would have been lucky to get a middle seat in the back booking two days ahead. I was upgraded to first class booking two days ahead. And I knew at that point, very bad things were happening. So I'd say that that was when it hit me in the face. I think by February, everyone was in planning mode to try and start to figure out, okay, what happens if travel cut drops 5%, 10%, 15%? No one until March was thinking about a complete shutdown. And no one was really thinking about what happened you know, circa March 15th of 2020. Um, that really did catch everyone off guard. And so March 15th kind of happens. Can you walk me through, from your perspective, kind of what happened maybe throughout April and May as it relates to being a hotel owner and operator? Sure. So the very first thing that happened in many cases was going into cash preservation mode. Um, Unfortunately, that meant considerable layoffs. Uh, It meant working with vendors to delay billing. It meant working with your lender to relax cash covenants. It meant going to your investors for cash calls. And it meant starting daily break-even analyses as to whether it made sense to even stay open or to close altogether. When PPP hit, Uh, It was its own sort of mad scramble, particularly for the open hotels to get applications in and loans processed as quickly as possible to try and cover as much salary as you could and try to keep people employed for as long as you could. The first days of of this in, in the second half of March and I would say all of April were sheer chaos. What also began happening, particularly in urban locations, was governments started looking for housing, whether it was for the unhoused, you know, homeless folks, or for traveling medical staff, or for quarantining persons. Uh, And so simultaneous to this, you know, mad dash to, to preserve cash and and preserve a position in your equity was starting to figure out, okay, what can we do? What do we do if we're taking COVID risky business? 
Um, how do we protect our employees? How do we get our hands on PPE? What guidelines should we follow? You know, when do we start taking this business? You know, if we take this business on a 60-day contract and this whole thing goes away, are we going to be stuck with something we don't want? So the second, the, you know, the other side of that coin was, okay, how do, we, how do we start driving some revenue to try and keep the lights on? Uh, and that was just as challenging because no one really knew you know, how long the virus lived on surfaces. How safe is it for a housekeeper to clean a guest room? How do we clean a guest room in a way that keeps our housekeepers safe? What PPE do we need for our front desk? How do we do a check-in behind masks, plexiglass, and from six feet away? So the operational side of things and, and you know, the, the, the keeping the lights on took up, I would say, almost as much of, of the time and energy and effort. And did the goalposts keep moving for y'all? Like, was there ever a moment that you finally were like, okay, this is where, this is where we are? Um, and what I mean by that is like, it, it seemed like, you know, the opening, like if you just take the office, for example, like originally offices were going to open up last July, then it was September, then it's January. Now we're here. Was there a moment that you had some clarity of like, kind of, this is what we're in for let's hunker down or did it vary kind of market by market? You know, some, some of our locations are going to open up much quicker than others and you treated it that way, or it just feels to me like in hotels and, you know, some of these, you guys just weren't given some of the clarity that other industries kind of were given is, am I mistaken in saying that? No, I don't think you are mistaken. It, there was absolutely a lack of clarity and the clarity that we did come to really varied property by property, location by location. We had hotels in our portfolio that we never closed because they were seeing you know, long-term sustained demand. Perhaps they were near hospitals or they were extended stay hotels with long-term business. We had other hotels that had you know, long-term uh, utility crew business, as an example, uh, from, from climate disasters. And those hotels continued to chug right along. On the other hand, you've got your, your core urban hotels in places like New York, Boston, D.C., San Francisco, where by about May, when it was very clear, when it was starting to become clear that it wasn't going to be a flash in the pan and it wasn't just going to be a gateway city problem, but it was going to be a national problem, we were starting to plan for much longer term closures. And we've been reevaluating those fairly constantly. Um, on a property by property basis. So we've made different decisions at different hotels within the same market uh, based on demand profile and location and you know, operational ease. But I would say we're still, there are still hotels we're not entirely sure when we're going to reopen. And I know, you know some of my, uh, my colleagues at other companies are, are having that same, com- same conversation where they're not entirely sure. We have an idea of when it's going to be but we're probably going to change our mind as we get closer. And on those hotels, is that more of a decision based on what's going on in local government and them calling of when you're going to open? Or is it based on the demand you're seeing in those markets going, there's just not enough demand right now to open up, but we could if we wanted to? It's generally on the basis of marginal demand against uh, variable cost of occupancy. So you know, what is, what is the absolute minimum n- number of dollars we need to spend to have a guest in-house? And is there enough 
demand to drive that revenue you know, over the variable cost of occupancy? And in, in some cases, the answer is yes. Uh, in other cases, the answer is no. Um, you know, if I was if I was a hotel on Manhattan's you know west side that was a big branded full service hotel that relied heavily on convention business, I wouldn't be open right now because my cost of occupancy, you know, my cost of housekeeping, my cost of house persons, my cost of front desk, my cost of goods sold is simply beyond what I can justify charging in the market. How much of that how much of it also has to do with with labor? Like what are you seeing kind of in the labor markets? For example, I was in Scottsdale over um over spring break, stayed at the Princess Hotel, which was by all means pretty damn open. Uh there really was not a lot we couldn't do and then I was talking to a a guy there and he told me I think it was uh, the Four Seasons in Scottsdale and the Phoenician in Scottsdale. One of them was like 25% open. One of them hadn't opened. And it was a, a big part of it was like purely just like finding the labor that's willing to come back and kind of open these things up. This is probably a loaded question, but let's just talk about labor right now. Like, how are you thinking about it? Labor is difficult right now. Uh, and I think it's difficult for a number of reasons. You know, one is quite frankly, you know, folks are are being well taken care of while they're unemployed. Folks who were laid off, um, and so they're not as likely to to take the risk and take the plunge back into the workforce. You know, two, and this is I'll, I'll give you the the some hotel guy personal opinion. So take that for what it's worth. Line level labor in hotels, similar to line level labor in other industries, uh, is primarily populated by groups of people who were hit the hardest by COVID. Low-income people were hit the hardest by COVID, and I think there's some scars there. And so I think you know, part of the challenge with getting staff back is a safety challenge. And, and my, my hope and expectation is that vac- as vaccination rates increase, we're going to have better access to, to line-level labor. Is there anything that you're seeing legislation-wise that's going to be some type of break for the hospitality industry that other industries might not get? I wish the answer was yes, but um, off the top of my head, I cannot think of anything, though I know there's been a considerable lobbying effort that the heads of you know every major hotel company uh, in the country and, and frankly all around the world have been working intensely with government to, to try and drive some benefit, to try and drive some, some breaks of some kind. But we really haven't seen anything hospitality-specific. We've, we've certainly had some benefits from whether it was PPP or the Main Street Lending Program, but those were widely available des- benefits to, to businesses. And so, you know, nothing specific to hotels. What are the big, the big four brands kind of mandating at least over the next couple of years? Is it like when you think about your cost structure, like you're going to have all these costs of keeping things a lot maybe cleaner than you used to, which, you know, on one end, you're going to have a cleaner hotel. But I talked to a lot of people in the hospitality restaurant industry is like, Chris, you don't realize like we have to clean every table and in like a restaurant setting, we have to clean it twice as much as we used to. And that 
requires, you know, paper towels and cleaning supplies. How are you thinking about cost structure going forward? Like, where are you going to save money going forward? And where are you now adding in line items that you never thought you'd had before? Yeah, uh, OPEX, non-staffing OPEX is is definitely gone up considerably for, for, you know, PPE, for cleaning supplies. And, you know, again, I'm going to give you the some hotel guy opinion. Uh, it's performative cleaning. I don't think it's truly adding safety to COVID. But it's what the brands want to see, quite frankly. I think it's what the public expects to see. So you have to do it. Um, That does actually trend back to labor a little bit with additional cleaning. We need to have additional people. Uh, And so, you know, I think there's going to be some some cost pressure in the short and medium term. I think once we're, we're really on the other side of this, a lot of that performative cleaning can go by the wayside. You know, where are we looking to save some money? You know, Marriott's running a pilot program right now for guest uh, for a guest check-in via kiosk to hopefully uh, save some costs on the labor side related to front desk. And in my mind, more importantly, to repurpose front desk from a purely transactional experience where you're handing the front desk agent your credit card and ID and they're handing you a guest folio for you to sign to something a little bit more interactive and helpful uh, and, and something that can ideally a little leave a little bit more of a, a long-term permanent good impression on your guests. Uh, so there's, there's some potential savings there. The other place the brands have been very flexible, uh, and certainly the hotel ownership community is grateful for it, is renovation requirements. So when you acquire a hotel that is a branded hotel, let's say you're buying a Hilton Garden, there's typically a renovation requirement associated with that change of ownership. That comes in the form of a property improvement plan or a PIP. Brands have been much more flexible on the PIP requirements with changes of ownership. In addition, brands built into their license agreements have PIP requirements at certain time periods. Uh, you know, Typically, like a seven-year and a 12-year. After seven years, you replace your soft goods, which are your upholstered goods. After 12 years, you replace your case goods. So a lot of hotels are hitting the cycle, and brands have been have been very flexible in postponing those capital requirements uh, until you know hopefully a post COVID world uh, when cash flow is there again. What at this point in the cycle now that we're sitting here in April of 2021, like what is is there anything left to keep you up at night, or do you see light at the end of the tunnel and you're just kind of more optimistic as each day goes by and the vaccine starts getting out? Well, look, I'm an optimistic guy by nature. Uh, I, uh, I I am very firmly looking at the light at the end of the tunnel. I do think on the balance, there are some things to keep one up at night. Um, and I think it, it tends to be around international travel that keeps me up a little bit. Um, I think domestic leisure travel is on fire you know, revenge travel is the is the phrase of the day, and it's really, really happening. Florida's absolutely on fire right now. So leisure travel's back. Corporate transient travel, meaning corporate travel for, you know, onesies and twosies. Um, I think that's going to come back, and I'm not terribly worried about it regardless of the office situation. I think if people come back into the offices like they were pre-COVID, travel's going to happen just like pre-COVID. If people are coming back to the offices more infrequently, there's going to need to be more travel for people that didn't historically travel. 
So if you've got a team that's generally remote, you're going to need to get them together once a month just to build rapport, to work on projects together, to you know maintain culture, to maintain morale. Uh, and that may be a group of folks who never traveled previously. I could see that happening an awful lot with uh, you know, computer programmers um, and software engineers and groups like that. So I, I'm pretty optimistic on business travel. Group always comes back, you know, group being conventions, associations, whether it's the American Medical Association or, um, you know, gosh, uh, ICSC or something like that. that. That's going to come back. It's just a question of time. It'll take a little while because I think some of the associations that run that business will have gone out of business and need to be replaced. Corporate CFOs will look at you know some of their their boondoggle spend and say, "Hey, I'm glad this is down," but it it, it always comes back. International travel worries me a bit because the U.S. seems to be doing a much better job of getting this thing under control via vaccination than a lot of other wealthy countries. Certainly, there are some who have done a dramatically better job than we have. But there are many who are traditionally big spenders in the U.S. in gateway and resort markets who are not. And I think the absence of those international guests is going to be felt heavily in places like New York, San Francisco, Hawaii, Chicago, Boston, Los Angeles, uh, on down the line. And so that's, that's something that worries me. What's like the percentage, if you take like a New York City and you think of like total hotel stays in, annually, what's the percentage of those hotel stays that are international versus domestic? Uh, shooting from the hip in New York, I would say it's probably 8 to 10%. Okay. Uh, it's been a couple of years since I looked at the numbers, so, so someone's going to correct me, uh, hopefully, on Twitter. There's always the guys on Twitter that will come out and correct you. There's plenty of them. Bring it on, reply guys. Like, um, yeah, the thing about those international guests, though, is they concentrate in higher-end hotels. They stay for longer. And there's considerably more ancillary spend. So if you package up total spend for an international leisure guest coming to Manhattan compared to a domestic leisure guest coming to Manhattan... Average total spend is probably two to three X for an international guest. So they punch above their weight class in value, not just within hotels, but within the entire ecosystem, restaurants, retail, uh, you know, tourism, um, tour companies, kind of on down the line. So you know, there, there's, a, there's a big chunk of spending missing when those folks are missing. And is the international issue more that we're not going to let them in? or that they're not comfortable coming, or a combination of both? Uh, I think it's probably a combination of both. You know, certain, certain countries are still restricting their citizens from leaving. We are certainly still requiring considerable uh, quarantines, and it's, it's done, my understanding or my recollection is it's state by state, but we're requiring, you know, considerable quarantine for folks coming from many nations. And I think the global wealthy, the global elite, aren't quite ready to jump back into the saddle yet. There seems to be less of a willingness to come and spend two weeks in a hotel followed by two weeks of you know fun in the city or fun in the sun than there would be just for two weeks of fun in the city and fun in the sun. So 
of the economy all the way to the luxury, and I know that y'all focus more in upper mid scale and upscale. Are there hotels that are going to fare off much better than others? Like, has COVID created a divide even within the hotel industry, or do you think that everybody kind of recovers kind of the same? I'm not sure it's created created a divide for two properties that you know you might say all other things are equal. I think the divide is really going to be geographic. I think the divide's really going to be service level, um, and it's going to be it's going to be target customer. So you know, big full service hotels that do a lot of meetings, I think are going to be the last things to come back. So so you know, the the Marriott Marquis Times Square is probably going to be one of the last hotels to really recover from COVID. You know, on the other hand, the Greenwich Hotel in in uh, in Tribeca which is a, a small hotel, a luxury hotel. Uh, the minute international travel comes back, that hotel is going to be just fine. Let's talk a, bit, a little bit about just transactions. As you know, it just kind of seems to be across the board, like nobody's seen the distress that we thought, not just in hotel, but in really any asset class. Have there been any notable transactions? Are y'all like, are y'all bullish and about to go on a buying spree like where are we at as far as M&A and has the can just been kicked down the road and there's a wave of, you know, bankruptcies coming? Like what's your kind of, and I know it's market by market, but like kind of what's your take on the current state of transactions in the hotel world? And then I want to ask you like, how the hell do you even value a hotel right now? But let's just first start with the state of transactions. So we are active and it's really a tale of two markets. If you're looking at upper end hotels in, in, historically good locations. You're looking at properties that only perhaps have suffered because of COVID and perhaps were not suffering pre-COVID. In many cases, the the urge to make a distressed sale or the drive to make a distressed sale isn't there. Lenders don't want to own these assets. Investors realize that these assets have value and are willing to protect their investments. And very few of them are coming to market. So with record levels of dry powder, every time one of them hits the the block, it gets an unbelievable amount of interest uh, and there tends to not be much of a discount. So that's that's kind of one side of the coin. Uh, On the other side of the coin, in the space we spend a lot of time in, that upper mid-scale and upscale space, there is volume happening. There are trades happening. Um, We're seeing trades happen at at discounts anywhere between 10 and 20% to pre-COVID values. And there are all kinds of reasons for, for those trades that are, are happening. You know, in, in a lot of the cases, what we've seen are either partnership disputes or owners looking to, to cycle capital into other aspects of their business. Uh, and so there's, there's certainly some things happening there. There are a fair number of note sales happening, whether individual or portfolio-based. There, there's a fair bit out there. Quite a bit are transacting, but we're also seeing some where it's a, a little bit of a valuation exercise by the lender, and that's much to be expected. Um, so there are there are things shaking. Um, I too thought that there was going to be kind of an immediate flood of transactions to hit. There was going to be huge amounts of distress. Banks weren't going to want to take these onto the balance sheets. Short sales would be happening left and right. Uh, it was going to be a bit of a free for all, and. Now that I had someone smarter than me explain it to me, I realized, 
why I was wrong. If we think back to 2009, it was a very similar kind of feeling. Post Lehman, the expectation was 2008, 2009, there was going to be a flood of asset sales. Uh, Travel was down, loans were impaired, people were not going to want to defend the you know, crazy prices they paid in 2006 and 2005. It was really going to be, you know, a, a free-for-all. That free-for-all never really happened. And the transaction market didn't really pick up until the second half of 2010 and into 2011. So if we kind of use that timeline, it's really going to be Q3, Q4 of this year when a lot more transactions start happening. And it's not going to be at these massive, you know, 25, 30, 40% discounts everybody was hoping for. It's going to be, you know, 5 and 10%. And it's going to be dependent on who's willing to take some recovery risk. What do you do if, assuming you have a, at least one hotel in your portfolio, or you, you, I think you said you have a few that just aren't open? What's going on at those hotels? Like, is there a security guard that, and, and, and like you're continuing to mow the lawn and make it kind of look nice on the outside? Like, what does a shutdown hotel look like right now in your portfolio? Yeah, it, it's basically a skeleton crew. Um, it, it's a little bit of security, a little bit of engineering to keep the, uh, the pipes going quite literally to, you know, flush every toilet, turn on every sink every now and again. Make sure that, you know, Legionella doesn't get its way into the water tanks. Um, and it's a, a, a sort of skeleton crew of uh, the executive team on property. It's probably the general manager and maybe the director of sales. Just trying to keep, you know, making sure the property is maintained, making sure bills are paid, making sure to answer sales calls for what happens, you know, post reopening, whenever that may be. But it's a pretty depressing place. Uh, I've toured, let's call it 10 shuttered hotels. And I don't like it. It, It's weird. These are places that are supposed to be social, full of people, happy, inviting, welcoming spaces. uh, And they ain't. And uh, it's a strange experience. And like the GM at one of those hotels, I'm assuming y'all are obviously communicating with them pretty regularly. But are they calling you like every week going like, can we turn on the spigot yet? Or do they kind of know, like, are they waiting to hear from y'all or are y'all waiting to hear from them? It's a collaborative effort. Uh, they're deeply involved in the decision-making. So, you know, our, our approach tends to be that our general managers are the captains of their ship and we're there to advise and provide insight and analytics and help them make strong decisions. And I think that's, that's you know, an approach that's pretty common industry-wide. Uh, owners and, you know, above party operation or above property operations will have more or less input depending on kind of who the personalities involved are. But, you know, our general managers, our, our sales folks are in constant conversations with our, our regional directors of operations and our regional sales folks and our, our VPs of ops kind of on up through the company and looking at market data, you know, looking at what inbound traffic looks like at the airports looking at what competitive performance looks like at, at open hotels and try to you know essentially work through the math of break even on a day by day basis to say okay when do we think we're going to be able to stay open consistently above break even yep what's the state of the capital markets 
is there a lot of equity that wants to get in right now or are banks starting to ease up? Uh, what are you seeing there? There is an absolute ton of equity that wants to get in right now. Oh, really? uh, I don't think I've ever seen this much equity in the industry going back to, to my start in 2006. Loans are available. There is bank debt available if you have good relationships with a, a regional lender. There's an awful lot of debt fund money available uh, if you want to play, if you want to pay Blackstone or, or Goldman or the like uh, for the privilege of their money, you certainly can do so. It's expensive, but it's there. Uh, loan to values are not high. You know, bank debt, you're probably talking 50, 55%. PE debt, you're probably talking 60%. Maybe if you've got a really good deal, 65%. Uh, so in many cases, what we and others are underwriting is get in the door on conservative debt, get a year or two out, refinance at more reasonable debt, and then ride the wave. It's On one end, I'm surprised. On the other end, I had a phone call the other day with a guy that um, owns a national chain of restaurants, and he said that pre-COVID, there was like no private equity interested in buying restaurants. And as it sits today, he gets like two calls a day from private equity. There's so much capital on the sidelines ready to get into the the, the restaurant industry. It sounds like it's kind of a similar setup to what you're seeing in hotels. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, we get a call, we get calls all the time, you know, with with basically unsolicited offers to buy. And, you know, in all candor, we're making similar calls. Yep. Have you done any transactions yet? Uh, in the last two months, we've been. We I think we've got. I think we've got call it a half a dozen hotels under contract. Oh wow! All kind of the same uh, thesis or uh, different each one. Yeah, very similar. Um, very similar theses. Uh, it, it's a lot of you know secondary and tertiary markets with good local demand, resilient demand low operating costs, uh, singles and doubles, no home runs. Yeah, yeah. Are you having to underwrite any differently now or banks requiring any different type of underwriting? Yeah, as we're looking at some of the bigger assets, there, there's absolutely more of a desire to see operating reserves and interest reserves funded up front. And that tends to be a big co- you know, topic of conversation. You know, When are we at the point where this hotel is co- covering debt service? When are we at the point where this hotel's covering property taxes and all of its, um, you know, expense load? Uh, and how do we get there? And how much additional cost does that add to a deal? So that's been that that's been a big topic of conversation on some of the larger assets we've been working on. Got it. All right. Um, let's spend a little time with our Twitter friends and some of the questions that came in. Um, uh oh. Here we go, baby. Buckle up. So the first, I think one of the most popular, um, there's a small company that went public a little bit ago. Uh, they go by Airbnb and they are never heard of them. Never heard of them. I just, I, I wouldn't have heard of them had I not read the comments of the tweet. What do the, what does the hotel industry think about Airbnb and what is their place in the industry? We'll start there. Hot topic of conversation and has been for a couple of years now. Um, I think as we've gotten further and further into the Airbnb world, we've seen some of the things that are going to have an impact and, and some of the areas where it will have an impact. You know, I think where you get hit with Airbnb impact in big markets, 
LA, San Francisco, New York, DC, is citywide sellouts. When your entire city is full, Airbnb supply flexes on, and it tends to flex on at a much lower price than it should. Uh, Folks who are putting their uh, apartments or spare rooms or what have you on Airbnb have absolutely, absolutely no idea of their pricing power. So what tends to happen is in citywide sellout situations where a month out, two weeks out, a week out, every hotel in the city would be you know, rising prices considerably because there's going to be somebody who's willing to pay almost any amount to stay there. There's a little bit less pricing power because that Airbnb supply comes online and starts to take the wind out of the sails. I think there's going to be some long-term value to home sharing, but I think a company like Marriott with what they're trying to do with home sharing, where they're truly verifying quality, availability, professionalism, uh, is probably going to have a chance of taking a real bite out of Airbnb, given the wildly disparate experiences one can have with an Airbnb. Uh, A good friend of mine once ended up in in one where uh, the toilet was in the middle of the room. And you know the photographs were taken strategically so that that was not obvious until you walked into the room. And so she and her husband were uh, not thrilled. They were still early in their marriage and in that period where you don't necessarily want to have the toilet in the middle of the room. Is Airbnb going to get into the hotel industry where they where you might go stay at a instead of like a Marriott courtyard, a Airbnb courtyard? Yeah, I, I do think they've made some some efforts to do that. Uh, they're in South Florida. There are a couple of developments that I think are being done. You know, multifamily type developments uh, with the intention of being put on Airbnb and partnered with Airbnb. And I think they'll they'll dip their toes into that. Where they're going to run into some challenges are, you know, zoning requirements and regulations in cities. And then, you know, if you're truly operating as a hotel, all of a sudden you've got the great equalizers and the reasons Airbnbs can be more uh, inexpensive go away. You've got uh, taxes and you're paying taxes like a business. You've got insurance requirements, paying insurance requirements, you're paying insurance like it's a business. Uh, You've got staffing. Uh, So, you know, if you've got a 200 unit Airbnb, you're going to have to have some folks there maintaining the space, cleaning the space, taking care of customer needs, mediating disputes when someone throws a party and angers the guests around them, kind of on down the line. And I think at that point in time, what Airbnb turns out to be is just a fairly low-cost source of business. Their commission structure for you know their corporate clients is somewhat akin to the commission structure um, you would see with an online travel agency if you were if you were utilizing that online travel agency through a brand. So I think they become a, a I think they play heavily in an OTA and I'd I'd worry more as Expedia than I would worry as Marriott. Got it. What's an OTA? Oh, sorry, online travel agency. Um, Online travel agency, Expedia.com, Booking.com, Travelocity, those types of. Well, another question came in while we're on that. It says, what's his thoughts on the Kayak Hotel opening this month? And I know Kayak's a booking agency, right? Yeah, I, I'm I'm very curious. Um, 
online travel agency customers tend to be more brand agnostic and much more price sensitive. So OTA customers are making their decisions based on location and price rather than anything else. And so if your brand is built around low price and researching to find the lowest price, which Kayak quite literally is, how does that translate when you're trying to operate a a, a physical business uh, instead of just taking a commission on bookings? What's Kayak saying on their end? Why are they doing this? Uh, To be honest, I don't know. Um, I've seen it and honestly haven't dug into it much. Probably should. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. There was a question, where's the entrepreneurial opportunity? I'll I'll ask it a different way. If you had $100 million right now and left where you're working now, what would you be doing inside the industry? Uh, I'd probably be doing something pretty doggone similar to what we're doing now. I'd be buying Hampton Inns, Residence Inns, Home Two Suites. I'd probably buy a bunch of extended stay America hotels, to be honest. Where? Anywhere. Um, you know, extended stay America hotels are really interesting. As a as an extended stay hotel, you know, if we were to compare it to something like a residence inn, um, residence inns have you know much longer than average lengths of stay. You know, they're they're four day, five day, six day lengths of stay compared to an industry average of like one point five. Extended stay America hotels, my understanding is, have average length of stay in the you know, like 20 plus day range. What you're effectively operating with an extended stay America hotel is a transient home. And you're doing so in a, you know, higher class facility than a roadside motel. So you can essentially have really good long-term visibility into your bookings and your, your occupancy. You can staff appropriately for that. Uh, and you've got a good corporate source of business you know, they've, there's a, a large sales team that's focused only on extended stay business. I think that's a really profitable model. I love it. A lot of people wanted to dog, and you kind of hit on it a little bit earlier. Why do we still have check-in stations and they're slow and it's a terrible experience? Like, is that going to ch- in, 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 in in light of COVID? Are we going to change check-in stations? Are they going to stay? Like, What's your kind of feedback on check-in stations? I do think the long-term, there will be more optionality for a guest to choose to check-in at a kiosk uh, or to check-in using an agent. But I do think from an industry perspective, we've got to be awfully careful. One of the big things that differentiates us from something like an Airbnb is the interpersonal. It's the interactive. And, and it's the ability of people on property to drive guest experiences. And if we get away from having our guests interact with our people, we lose a pretty big differentiator. So I, I think there will be some more flexibility. Certainly app-based check-ins have, have taken off for a while. You know, these check-in kiosks, I think, are going to continue to grow. Uh, but there's never, I don't think we're ever going to truly do away with a front desk. Yep. Is there any technology maybe because of COVID or that was coming before COVID that, that makes these things more efficient and a better experience for the customer that interests you? You know, it, it's interesting. If you think about the branded hotel world, um, the technology tends to be pretty antiquated. 
you know, Marriott's central reservation system is built up on a mainframe, if I remember correctly. And I'm, I'm, I'm betting Hilton's is the same. A lot of hotels use a property management system, you know, sold and built by Oracle that looks like it was a Windows 3.5 interface. Uh, it, it was the sort of thing we grew up using in the 80s and early 90s. I think where technology has a chance to be disruptive in the positive sense is to, to really work on some of those you know, property management systems, some of those reservation systems, to really just kind of smooth out the data flow, to build better user interfaces, and to allow more optionality which can help guests you know, choose the exact room they want to stay in, help guests buy you know, customized packages of experiences, you know, help front desk agents check people in in a way that feels like a kiosk, but really there's an interactive experience. Maybe instead of there being a, a front desk, it's a person with an iPad that comes up to you and welcomes you in and checks you in with four or five swipes. I think there's some opportunity there to to really improve the guest experience with technology. What amenities uh, matter in in hotels? Are there is there a shift in amenities? I know, like in multifamily, there's all these new amenities coming. Is there any cool amenities that, that y'all are thinking about going forward? You know, I, I think there's been over the years a, a push to have much, much, much better fitness centers in every type of hotel. Um, and that's been driven by a lot of the brand conversations that they have with their most loyal guests, uh, which are, you know, tend to be corporate travelers and, uh, you know, folks who are corporate road warriors want to be able to stay fit and want to do so in a, a much more comfortable environment. So what we're, what we're seeing a lot of our fitness centers getting really, really blown up and, and improved considerably. And I think that's going to continue. And it wouldn't shock me if we see partnerships with third-party fitness providers start to, to grow and expand. I think some of the experiential things, uh, is it, I'm going to screw this up. Is it Drive Shack? Uh, that uh, is sort of the, the, the top golf light where someone can, can pop into a single stall and you know shoot, uh, shoot golf balls at a screen and it sort of accomplishes the same thing. You know, things like that are going to continue to to be of interest to hotels depending on their location. But I think that the great you know, push over the next few years, at least at the upper end of the business, is going to continue to be food and beverage and experiential food and beverage, to destination food and beverage, creating restaurants, creating bars that locals want to be at that can drive business to your hotel by allowing your guests you know, priority access to something that every every local to uptown Dallas wants to be in. Yep. What did you mean earlier in the conversation when you were talking about room service and then you were talking about, you know, with Uber Eats and DoorDash, there's hundreds of opportunities to just order from around the city rather than ordering from the hotel. What were you talking about there? Yeah. So, you know, let's think of a, a typical full service hotel. Um, maybe, maybe we'll talk about a, a Hilton in any city USA. Uh, the typical requirement is that that hotel offer room service. It's not always to offer 24-hour room service, but perhaps you know 6 a.m. to midnight room service. And that's really just giving the guest the ability to call down to the front desk and order something off a menu, whether it's the restaurant's menu or an abbreviated mem- menu. 
And then that food is brought up to the guest room. Um, sometimes historically it's been brought up on, you know, a, a banquet cart and on a big dish, on a big tray that gets walked in and the cloche gets taken off and you sign your bill and it's a whole thing. Now it's moved more to like a knock and drop where it comes up in a bag, they knock on your door, they hand it to you, they walk away. But when you're running a room service operation, what it means you have to have is you have to have kitchen capacity at all times the room service is running. And room service doesn't get a lot of pickup. It doesn't get a lot of use. So you're constantly running uh, a kitchen and you potentially have you know room service runners people who are bringing things up and down it gets to be very cost prohibitive and room service can be a considerable uh cost strain on a hotel so if you're in a city that has you know a massive presence of of uber eats doordash grubhub seamless whatever it may be why not just direct your guests to that and eliminate the uh the loss leader yep i didn't realize that so so room service is typically not a widely used part of the hotel uh, ecosystem. No, it, it there are occasions when room service is profitable, uh, but that's more the exception than the rule. Got it. All right, a few more questions. This was a really specific one. Maybe you'll have an answer, maybe you won't. It said, if I own a 1960s motel in Trenton, New Jersey, that is primarily longer term stays for low income folks, do I sell now and cash out before it's too late? Or how long do people with Roach motels have before it's an obsolete asset? For frame reference, we had 70% occupancy during COVID. So two very different answers to that. One, it's already obsolete. But two, it's a good business. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it is a good business. Uh, Starwood Capital for, for many years, and they may still owned a, a, a chain of hotels called In-Town Suites. Uh, that were essentially that. It was long-term transient housing. Uh, folks booked by the week, checked out every Sunday, checked in every Sunday, uh, so they couldn't really establish residency. But you know, it was a it was a massively profitable business. Um, I think if you if you approach that property in Trenton as though you're providing long long-term transient housing, uh, you can be profitable for as long as you want to be profitable. You're certainly going to run some risks. You know, there's certainly uh, uh, risks to property. Uh, you're going to want to have the police on a, your good side, but it can be a profitable business. And, you know, folks need housing. You can, you can certainly be doing a societal good at, uh, at the same time you're doing well financially by providing low-income affordable housing. What are some common mistakes that independent operators make pre-open? Ooh, pre-opening. Um, gosh. So pre-selling is a real challenge. Uh, and it's a, it's a challenge for a, a bunch of reasons, not the least of which are, you know, timing your pre-sell because until you're about a week or two out from a hotel opening, you're never exactly sure what day you're going to open. Uh, and two, the act of selling a hotel that doesn't exist is hard. Uh, it's a trust, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a, you know, selling a, a selling a dream, and so I think on the sales front, where independent hotels can go wrong pre-opening, is not hiring a really, really, really talented director of sales. Um, quite frankly, I would hire a director of sales before I hired my general manager, unless I was worried my general manager wasn't going to like my director of sales. Uh, I think having 
sales folks on board, on board early and telling the story as much as possible is, is to everyone's benefit pre-opening. I think another concern that independent hoteliers you know, can, can have, and I'm going to think more about inexperienced independent hoteliers, is opening before a project is truly done. You only have one chance to make a first impression. And if you open while half of your guest rooms are still under construction, maybe a third of your lobby is still closed off, that's the first impression you're going to make for a lot of guests. And that's going to be really hard to overcome. This might be a loaded question, but are there common mistakes that independent operators make, period, even after they're open? Yeah. I, I, for Instead of independent, maybe let's say inexperienced, yeah, because inexperienced. there are some truly, truly spectacular independent operators out there, and I don't want to ascribe these things to them. Pricing. So, you know, pricing is always a challenge uh, and having really, really smart revenue management folks who understand how to, how to float with supply and demand and how to make, you know, predictions based on available data is critical. And I think many inexperienced operators will discount how important revenue management is and how important flexible pricing is uh, and think to themselves, well, I just want to be, I, I want to set something, I want to know what I'm doing and I want to move forward. Uh, and I think there's a real, you know, potential for disconnect and a potential for loss there. You know, another area where I think you tend to get uh, challenges with inexperienced uh, hoteliers is hiring. It's hard to get access to talent, not not just at the line level, but at the you know hotel executive team level. You know, good general managers, directors of finance, directors of sales and marketing, directors of revenue management, directors of engineering. Uh, and if you're a one-off operator, you're not offering a career path to anyone in those positions. The general manager has achieved the highest level with your company that they possibly can. So what you're going to get is someone who maybe isn't quite so ambitious or is maybe at the end of their career or is maybe you know, found the position that makes them happiest and they're going to get comfortable and enjoy it. And you're not going to get the most competitive people. So when you're an inexperienced operator or a one-off operator, you really have to hire less for you know, deep experience because that's when you're going to get the people who are comfortable and, and maybe set in their ways. And you've got to hire for competitive people, people who are hungry, people who are going to go out there and fight like hell every day for you. And then you've got to be prepared to lose them. And that ain't easy. No, I know. Is there still room for independent boutique hotels in the industry? Oh, heck yeah. I love independent boutique hotels. We, uh, we've got a handful of them. Uh, and, and it's a space we're looking to grow in. I think independent boutique hotels in the right locations can be absolutely successful. And they can do something differently. They can be, they can be venues for experimentation uh, in a way that, that branded hotels cannot. And in a way that they historically have been. Um, independent boutique hotels have driven a lot of the, the guest service innovations, a lot of the amenity creation that we've seen in branded hotels have been copies of what independent hotels have done. Uh, and I think that'll continue to be the case. The brands will be followers and the independents will be leaders. All right. You, uh, we'll, we'll do one more kind of personal and then we'll bring her home. 
you had said something in the call in the in the notes. You said I'm pretty scared of heights, which makes touring hotels and adaptive reuse projects interesting. Let's talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I am not terribly good with heights, and so you know there'll be. Gosh, I'm trying to think of a, a good story or two that I can tell. Well, actually, so just a couple of years ago, I was touring some properties in Toronto uh, as a potential. Uh, adaptive reuse uh, of an office to a hotel. And, you know, part of the pitch from the broker was that there was plenty of roof space available to do a rooftop bar. There aren't many rooftop bars in the city, you know, because of the weather. But when when the weather's great, people want to be outside, yada, yada. So, okay, great. Get up to the top floor and they say, all right, we're going we're gonna to take this stairwell up to the roof. Take the stairs up to the roof take two steps outside, realize that two steps in front of me is the edge of the roof. There's no railing, nothing like that. I, uh, I, I certainly had some heart palpitations and looked behind me before I stepped back, uh, which was good because there was a little ledge there that would have dropped me down five feet. I, uh, I, I basically stood in one place, did a 360 degree turn and said, okay, I'm done now. <laughs> Gonna make great rooftop bar. Uh, great rooftop bar. Good work. Let's go downstairs. Um, there was another, another situation where I was looking at an empty parcel, interestingly enough, and there was a warehouse next door and the owners of the parcel said, Oh, you know, let's go up to the roof of the warehouse. You can really see, you know, for, for, for a couple of miles around and I'll point out all the new development that's happening. I said, Oh, okay. And the warehouse was, was an empty space, you know, a hundred feet high, 200 feet long, a hundred feet wide stairwell went up the side of the uh, one of the walls and get up to the top of the stairs and realize we're, we're not at the roof yet. I said, guys, what's, what's going on? And so they point over the railing uh, about a foot past uh, the edge of nowhere to where there's a, a, gosh, what's the right phrase? A pull down stairwell, like one of those things you use to get up into the attic. They say, oh, we're going to go up that. And they pull it down. And you literally have to step over the railing from the stairwell out into nothing 100 feet below you in order to step (laughs) onto this ladder. And I thought going up was tough. But then when I got up there and I realized I was coming back down, you know, the top step to the top, to the actual, you know, footing on the roof was about two feet. And so what you're really thinking to yourself is, oh my gosh, my leg is dangling a foot and a half into nothing. <laughs> Where the heck is this thing? Am I about to tumble, you know, hundred feet to my death below? Uh, I, I would not say I acquitted myself particularly well in that scenario. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, all right. That was fun. Um, man, I really appreciate you spilling your guts today on hotels. Um, I love staying in hotels. I'm back to traveling for what it's worth to you, which I'm just a guy in Fort Worth and you're just some hotel guy. So we're just two guys here chatting. Man, I think the office is going to be more important than ever. Um, I've been pretty vocal about it and I'm wishing nothing but the best for the hotel industry. And I think y'all are going to do incredible things over the next couple of years. Everybody I talk to wants to be out and about. Um, you call it revenge travel, but I think we realize more now than ever that the things that are important are the experiences that we make and the people that we meet. And uh, COVID was probably a good reminder of that. And I hope all of that 
uh, makes the next few years in the hotel industry nothing but positive. Y'all deserve it. Uh, I, I really appreciate it, Chris. It was uh, I'm so grateful you asked me to do this. Um, it was an absolute joy. And uh, I, I promise I'll be better the second time. <laughs> no, this was incredible. And like I told Real Estate God on the other podcast, if we ever do meet in person, you know, nudge me and maybe wink at me so I know that you're some hotel guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got it. Next time I'm uh, I'm in the Dallas Fort Worth area, I will uh, I'll shoot you an anonymous email to say, uh, "Hey, I'm in town." I love it, man. Well, thanks again. And uh, like I said, all the best uh, as you march on through the rest of this year. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you sometime. Uh, thank you so much. This was this was truly a privilege. I appreciate it. Okay, buddy. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.